Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Hello, Tour Guide Tell All Land. Hello, Podcast Land. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. This is December, and we are your faithful, friendly, neighborhood, semi-local DC tour guides here to talk with you about scandal and fun and American history and all kinds of exciting and fun things. And before we get into our topic, as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are... and we're back in your ear holes again it's december we are here we're excited to have you along with us on our journey um we would like to start of course as ever by shouting out our patrons our wonderful and amazing patrons the wind beneath our wings they keep the lights on for uh the pod and hopefully are getting their patron only episodes once a month so those are kind of fun and exciting uh we also want to mention we are still out and about even though the temperatures have dropped a little bit we still like to give tours it actually is better in the cold almost than in august uh and so we are giving plenty of holiday tours we have bus tours we have georgetown glow uh which is a unique uh holiday light exhibit in georgetown and it's really lovely uh we also have our normal lincoln and national mall tours etc uh so we are still out and about doing the tour thing and would love to see you uh we've seen so many of our lovely guests on tour and it's always a thrill so we're excited holiday time is a good time we know where all the good hot chocolate is in the dc area And thank you again for another year of sticking with us with the pod. Thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, We are rounding the corner on the fourth year of the pod, which is nuts. I can't believe it. (laughs) And we're glad you're here around with us for the next bit. So, Becca, what are we talking about today? We're doing a topic that we have danced around a bit. This is something that has been referenced a few places. We've definitely, from the beginning of this podcast, we're like, at some point, we're going to have to talk about these people and this particular person in general. So um, it's a, a bold choice for the end of the year, I think, for us to talk about this, because there should be just a slight bit of maybe content warning on this episode. We're going to be talking about a group of people, community known as the Oneida community and their leader, John Humphrey Noyes. And there's... um. There's some stuff here. There's some sexual content. I think we'll put it in there. This is probably not suitable for work. If you share this pod with your younger listeners, this may not be the one for them. I'd probably put this at a good like PG 
high school. PG I don't 13, know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Um, We're going to talk about sex, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some things that are a little, a little squidgy, but also interesting, but just a little warning, but this is sort of a fun one, I think, to have at the end of the year, because we've over the last year, the pod really kind of been centered in that late 19th century mindset, so much changing in the country after the Civil War. And a lot of this is going to kind of dovetail with other things we've been talking about. So yeah, I'm excited. Are you excited? I, I am always excited to talk about John Humphrey Noyes. The pod I think that most dovetails the best with this is our Garfield and Gateau episode. Not so much because of James Garfield, the president of the United States, but because of his assassin, Charles Gateau, is a um, a guest at the United community for a while. It doesn't go that great for him. He's not well regarded, but his father is a devotee uh, of John Humphrey Noyes. So that's probably the closest link. But John Humphrey Noyes, Google him right now, guys. He has a great, yeah, take a look at him. Great mustache beard situation. It's really the facial hairs. It really starts as sideburns, like massive sideburns, and then kind of comes down around. We'll put it in the show yeah. notes. But you got to have a visual, I think, on this gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, he's actually, he's from Vermont. He's born 1811. He comes from a pretty connected background. His father is very well respected. His father's in religion. He's a minister, a preacher, a businessman. He's a member of the House of Representatives as well as involved in Vermont on the state uh, legislature as well. And his mom is the aunt of Rutherford B. Hayes, who would go on to be president of the United States. So Noyes is cousins with Hayes. Wow, that's cool. This is a man who comes from a pretty, like, we're not going to say 1% background, but a pretty well-connected New England background. He is 20 years old when he has a religious conversion, which is spurred by the preachings of a man named Charles Finney. Finney is a really interesting figure in American theology. He's sort of considered this father of revivalism in the United States. He is really essentially kind of about eschewing a lot of these old-fashioned ideas about religion and really sort of bringing the religious movement in with the evolving ideas about society in the 19th century. So certainly abolition, but also the women's movement, thinking about workers and their value to society. So all of these things being kind of wrapped up uh, along with this renewed interest, this idea of sparking kind of a, a new interest in God and religion. There are kind of two big things that John Humphrey Noyes really picks up from Finney. One is that this is maybe an era in the 19th century of a more emotional form of preaching. This is not about reading from your book in a dry, puritanical way, right? It's not about being austere. This is about revivals, events. It's about feeling something. It's about getting excited. So this is very different from a lot of what's happened in New England previously. Finney also advocates for this idea of Christian perfectionism, being free from sin in this lifetime. And I'm just going to drop what you probably already know, listeners, which is not, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a philosopher, really. There's a lot of ideas about the role of sin among man and and whether you could ever truly be free of sin. But Finney's sort of advocation is that it's possible. We should be striving for that perfectionism. And John Humphrey Noyes is like, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. And he starts to embrace that idea really intensely, but he is going to take it in kind of a different direction. But essentially, What John Humphrey Noyes comes to believe in this religious conversion is that free will comes from God, which means our free will is divine. Thus, 
any choice you make with your free will is good and valid because it comes from a pure, good, divine place, which is one interpretation of how how this works. Again, not not a religious scholar, but this is sure. not the only right idea on this, but it kind of makes sense. The logic tracks for me. And what John Humphrey Noyes starts to really embrace is this idea that we should live life based on an intuition, really sort of leaning into what we believe in our heart of hearts is good and care less about societal norms. We should be less hung up on the traditional religious morality that has been preached previously. So, so far, so good. We'll maybe circle back around to what that means practically in a little bit, but that's sort of what's happening. As a young man, he has his eyes opened to a different kind of religion, different from what he's been raised with. Yeah, he goes through a religious conversion, and he graduates from Dartmouth, and he's going to go to law school, but then he doesn't want to go to law school. And th- he he's going to declare himself um, perfect and free from sin at some point and that's odd uh he claims that his new relationship to god cancels out his obligation to traditional moral standards or the normal laws of society and i don't think you need to really know what the normal laws of society are to know that society's not going to love that a lot <laughs> this is right like he decides like oh, i'm going to act on impulses from my intuition rather than give thought to actions or consequences so that's not i feel like going to hold him in good stead with the rest of his religious community indeed he causes an outrage at his college he had just earned a license to preach and is going to be almost immediately revoked uh so that's not good let me just jump in here really quickly too because when we say he loses his license to preach he had been at yale theological seminary which at the time was the preemptive place in America, in this sort of a pre-Civil War era to study religion and spirituality and theology in the United States, it had been really significant to him because it connects him into some of these other movements, abolition and the women's movement, which is just starting to burgeon really at this time or about 10 years before Seneca Falls. And so being in New Haven, being at Yale, these are people who consider themselves socially progressive and intellectually progressive, and yet... When he comes out and he's like, nah, 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 babe, I'm free from sin. YOLO, you only live once. Everything I choose to do is good. Even these fairly yeah. liberal leaning for the era <laughs> preachers and ministers and scholars are going, that's that's a bridge too far, sir. We have so we are a society, we have rules. So I mean, it's not like he's pushing back against the stuffed shirts. He <laughs> is even causing a bit of outrage among those that would have been considered quite progressive for the era. The other little thing that happens while he's at Yale is he decides that he has figured out when the second coming of Christ occurred, which is kind of a big deal. A lot of, a lot of scholars have tried to figure out when Christ will come back. And John Humphrey Noyes is like, no worries. I already figured it. I got it. He came back in 70 AD. Sure. Which so, you know, he's living in, in the 1830s. Which means, congratulations, 19th century America. You're already living in the second coming. Life is good. So he is, he's kind of freaking people out a little bit. And he's got to leave. He's got to leave New Haven. He's got to leave Connecticut. They're like, no, thank you, sir. But I just love that even for the progressives of the time, they're like, this is a bridge too far for us. 
Yeah, John Malfrey Noise seems to be taking a lot of the progressive ideals of the era and like supercharging them. And like, I'm just going to go 10 steps further than everybody else is. And it does not seem that there's a lot of interest in his extreme views. He's gone off the left end of the pool, like very much into the deep end. And he's going to, he basically goes home to Putney, Vermont, and he continues to preach and he's going to get married in 1838 to a woman named Harriet Holton. And this is important. This is going to be important to his sort of later development and the Oneida development. They're actually fairly happy for a while and their relationship is more or less a traditional marriage. She's pretty high up in Vermont politics. She's the granddaughter of the lieutenant governor of the state. And she's got some money and is going to support him before their marriage, which is good. But... I can't imagine he's making a ton of money preaching his very new religious ideals. No, yeah, I can't imagine there's a lot of, like, interest in this. And they have, uh, within the first six years of their marriage, she gives birth five times, and only one of those five children survives, which is devastating. Awful. And really terrible. And it's very traumatic. But also, like, to get pregnant five times in six years is traumatic. It's extensive and this will come back to influence i think his ideas but i can't imagine living through that that must have been it's so it's heartbreaking but also physically just exhausting and he goes like he gets upset and is traumatized by this imagine how like traumatized she must have been the one who goes through it and he basically is like wait a second this isn't right we're asking women to shoulder a lot of this a burden as far as child rearing as far as the medical care of the time not being that great we're asking a lot like five kids in six years five pregnancies in six years is a is a toll physically it's a toll even if they had all lived it's still physically a great toll but to bury four children in six years is a lot and so this gives him the idea that like hey there's got to be a way to do this sex thing without the baby thing. Like there's got to be a a contraceptive here. And he becomes interested in what he's going to refer to as complex marriage. We would call it a different name. (laughs) We would call that polyamory or polygamy. Basically don't need to stick to one spouse, essentially. Yeah, why why limit yourself, you know? Yes. Why not uh open open up the bounds of what this could be? And it's not in his telling right purely out of an impulse to sleep with as many people as possible. It's we can share in the burden of this. We can share in the emotional responsibility mm-hmm. of this. We can share in the practicalities of marriage, the domestic work, the the intellectual work and emotional work that goes into it. And it can be good and healthy for our sex lives as well. So um, it's really very modern stuff. It's really progressive. And it's going to dovetail with the idea that there should be a way that we can all have sex without having to worry about being pregnant at every opportunity and that women should be freed from this burden. And he's going to practice basically what he calls male continence, which (laughs) basically takes the burden of contraception on the man, which is sadly progressive even now. (laughs) but that's the idea that he has. And so they're going to basically, he merges his marriage with another couple, a guy named George Cragen and his wife, and they all share a common house and a common bed. And they start 
formally organizing a communal organization in 1844. So Noyes has moved back. He's gotten married. He's lost four children in six years. And then he like basically expands his marriage and moves in with another couple. So all of this is happening within like six or seven years. Yeah. And this is Putney, Vermont. Not a, it's not a huge metropolis. It's a, it's a town. Nope. And so this isn't going unnoticed. And um, they're no. certainly not keeping this within their bounds. It is fascinating to me too, how quickly he formalizes it and is interested in putting together rules and responsibilities and obligations. There really is a sense that we're going to share the work of this. We're going to share. There's a lot of upside to this, right? Sounds great to, to swap spouses or share spouses, but also like there's fiscal responsibilities. Who's going to provide for everybody? He very quickly wants to make this equitable. And I think that's really fascinating and, and, and put it down on paper. A paper trail is also maybe not so great from a legal perspective. No. Because, <laughs> you know, the Johnny Law isn't going to love this. And it doesn't help that he starts pulling more and more people in, primarily women. Yes. Widows from Putney, Vermont, and the surrounding areas, and very young women as well. There is this sense uh, that he has about sort of sexual education, which is smart, right? Helping young men and women understand how to have sex, how to have fulfilling sex, how to understand where procreation happens. Mm -hmm. But also, these are our young men and women of, of all ages, including not necessarily what we might consider an age of consent today. And this is going to raise a lot of eyebrows and cause some ripples of unhappy town folk. Yeah, you can imagine this not going that great. This is the 1840s. You can see this ending badly in Putney, Vermont. So they go to Oneida, New York. He and his well, and I should say they they don't just go for fun. I mean, in 1847, Noyes is indicted for adulterous fornication. Yeah. There is a warrant for his arrest. He's going to leave the state. So they go to Oneida, New York, but it is not simply because the neighbors are looking at a sidelong. It is I have been pestered by the law enforcement. I'm now actually facing charges because of this activity. We need to get out of here. So this will not be the first time he's going to have to escape the law. No. And in fact, Oneida is a really interesting choice. He does not pick the upstate New York by accident. There's a lot of stuff going on in this area of the world. Oneida is part of what's called the burned over district in sort of Western New York. There's a lot happening religiously. Like this is where Mormonism takes root. You've got shaker activity. You've got a bunch of perfectionist communities like the Oneida community in this area. You also have, this is not far from Seneca, and this is 1847. So one year later, you have the beginnings of the women's movement. We're not far from Rochester, New York, which at that time is where Frederick Douglass lives and is writing his abolitionist newspaper. So there's a lot of progressive views happening in this whole area of New York. It's sort of a hotbed for this kind of activity. They have a, a really, there's a spiritual arm to it, particularly with noise and Oneida, but there's also like just a lot of free love and progressive thinking and what we would even to this day consider like a lot of progressive thought is happening sort of in this area. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is going to be very active in the women's movement. She lives in this area. So there's, we've mentioned this before. We'll probably mention it again. This is a very like saturated area with progressive thought, progressive causes and religious issues. So he's not picking Oneida like out of the hat. This is, there's a reason he's going there. 
it's also give or take about 160, 170 miles from the Canadian border, which sure. were one to at some point feel that they needed to leave the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you would be closer than you might be in, say, Vermont or having, you know, fl- fleeing south, for example. So absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, just the convergence of all these progressive movements in one place. They know that there's Mm -hmm. going to be overlapping interests here because he is very much an abolitionist, very much thinking about the women's movement, knowing that they're probably going to have friendlier folks surrounding them. But also, hey, by the way, if I needed to go to Canada, it's not that far at the end of the day. So yeah, and most most of his Vermont community goes with him. So most of the people to whom had been participating in Vermont will go, as will others. So he doesn't go totally alone. No, and they build a big house. In the next year, 1848, they build what's called the mansion house. And it's big. It houses hundreds of people. They, But the height of the Oneida community, they have over 300 members. So this is a fairly decent sized community. They last until the 1880s. And they have a, it's a, it literally is in the most communal sense, a commune. They live all together. And they build, by the way, several very successful industries including flatware, silverware. They make, to this day, actually, if your grandparents or grandparents may have Oneida silverware. So that's, they'd still do make that stuff. But they share resources, possessions. There's a division of labor that's established that everybody kind of participates equally. Although, as happens, women tend to work more in the domestic sphere than, out, than in the industrial sphere. And they rotate through jobs. They, you know, people rotate into different things. So you're not stuck doing the same thing all the time. No, like if you're, let's say you're trained to do the silverware. Well, that's great. You might do that for six months, but then you'd go over and do garden work. And then you'd go over and maybe you'd be working in the leather making. So you were learning a lot of different skills. Nobody had to be stuck doing what might've been a less desirable job for longer. And although women, it's it's sort of a mixed bag. If you look at the letters from the women there in terms of how much they were able to do outside of the domestic. A lot of the women were happy to be in the domestic space. And even there, they tend to be rotating. So you might be handling laundry for a little bit, but then you'd be over in cooking and meals. So it's a really fascinating, for this time period especially, fascinating look of like, how can we share the labor? How can we lessen the divide between what we expect men to do and women to do? How can we eliminate this classist idea of what kind of labor is valued? And again, this is at a point where we're thinking about kind of on the verge of industrialization and thinking about a worker's role. And they're so organized about it. They established 27 standing committees, which I'm involved in some volunteer organizations. Committees, man, (laughs) 27 is a lot. And yet this exists for almost 40 years. That's the only way that this is going to work, right? You have to have structure. And they have 40 different administrative groups, and you are expected to participate as your skill set and interest sees fit. But you have people handling the business side, the money side. You have people that are handling disputes. You're having people that are handling everything from medical needs, medical care. All of this is being handled together. It really is this attempt to make sort of this utopian society and what, again, they think they're living in the second coming. And so how can we best do this? How can we best care for each other and do it in a way that's really documented and structured and professional? 
And that's I think a big part of why I think it's not just something that happens for a few years and then falls apart. It's why they can go for decades. We're going to get into the sort of weird sexual practices that they have in a second. And it is, there's a little bit of fun to be had there, but they also like, they have a bond with people that lasts for a long time. One of the things that they do, which I find to be fascinating is they have something called mutual criticism, which basically every member of the community goes through this and you're subject to criticism either by a specific committee or by the whole community during a meeting you stand in the middle of your peers and they criticize you they tell you and not really like what you can improve on in your character some of it's quite severe they tell you you know how this is how you can conquer your faults uh this is what we have noticed you're not helping with in the general morale and they really pick people apart with an eye to helping them improve become stronger and as the individuals become stronger so does in fact the entire community so there's this idea that we can perfect each other and that if we're honest with each other and and try to take our egos out of the equation as much as possible, that we can perfect ourselves uh, and perfect each other. I wonder how well that went down with people. Noise does not seem to have been subjected to this sort of mutual criticism quite as much. Kind of convenient. (laughs) I know, right? Quite as much as severely as everyone else. Uh, But I think the idea is an interesting one, whether or not it like worked out in practice is another story, but you can see it. I think it's so interesting. And I think that what really fascinates me or what I find kind of mind blowing, the older I get, the more I understand how workplaces operate in like our world today (laughs) is that despite this, right, despite what seems like a very challenging thing to do, the mutual criticism, they build a very economically successful community. So even with this division of labor, even with bringing people in and training them and the free love aspect and all that that we're going to talk about, they still managed to make a lot of money to build a really successful economy to the point that they are outsourcing Mm -hmm. their labor. They're hiring workers as a community saying, oh, well, nobody really likes doing X, Y, and Z jobs. Why don't we just spend our communal profit and hire people to do it? And so they become one of the largest employers in upstate New York. So I think often sometimes there's this mentality of, well, you can't have something that's equitable and equal and egalitarian because you won't make any money off of it. And yet here are the Oneida managing to be quite successful and at the same time also putting everybody Mm -hmm. through this really mentally and emotionally rigorous endeavor of the mutual criticism. And yet, again, it doesn't seem to long-term impact profitability and and the work environment. So it's not just like, oh, let's just hang out on this commune and feel good, baby. Like they're producing goods and making money off of them. And that aspect of it is really, really interesting to me that they can be so financially successful. Yes. Now, here's here's the part that makes yeah. everyone a little bit nervous. They advocate free love. Which allegedly he coins that term. That's, we believe, oh. John Humphrey Noyes. He's credited with it. It seems to maybe have existed. But this is really the first time we see in the United States someone openly writing and using that phrase. So free love, women's right to sexual pleasure, birth control, children being raised by the community, not in a traditional family. So far... So good, I think. We think we're okay. These are 
I'm, I'm doing okay. However, he also advocates for male continence, which is fine. Like the idea that, you know, men can control themselves and that sex for pleasure and sex for procreation are two very different things. In fact, while they have hundreds of men using male continence as birth control, there were 12 unplanned births in a 20 year period, which is pretty good as far as. For the 1840s, 50s, 60s. Absolutely. Um... Yeah. So this is a pretty <laughs> effective form of birth control. However, there is all that's so so far so good. But the problem here is he's going to institute what is called sexual mentorship. And that's not great. Basically, the idea is young men are going to be introduced to this idea of male continence by postmenopausal, so older women. So that basically those older women who have been around the block are going to teach these younger men how essentially to control themselves. And at the same time, older men are who are who know how to do this are going to uh, introduce young women to this process so basically you have young men sleeping with much older women and much older men sleeping with much younger women and that's where you're going to run into some problems because there's a lot of room here for exploitation and don't think for one second that John Humphrey Noyes isn't doing that and he it does in fact come from like i we mentioned earlier i feel like a decent place he wants to spare his wife more traumatizing births the death of children like there's a reason for this that he talks about how pregnancy and childbirth levies attacks on women which it does <laughs> you know and so there's a but the idea of it just it kind of seems to spiral out of control i feel like all the ideas are good and then it just doesn't quite work i think one of the the big problems is he takes a really personal interest in these pairings and often john humphrey mm -hmm. noise is the one determining where these mentorships are going and that starts to kind of devolve into a lot of favoritism a lot of sort of rewarding those that are most loyal to him also you know Young is great, but younger is better. And the age of these mentees goes younger and younger as the Oneida grows. And that's at Noise's own sort of encouragement, which is a little troubling. There's also, I think, an aspect of this too with the birth control that is very, really significant, right? There is no pill in this era. There's very little understanding about procreation, frankly. So the ability to understand what's happening, but they start utilizing it in a way that we would really, I think, classify as eugenics today. Not only are we trying to spare women undesired, unwanted pregnancies, yes. which I think is really significant, um, having control over family planning is so important for men and women. It's an important autonomy thing. But then John Humphrey Noyes is starting to say, well, wouldn't it be great if we could bring together, you know, the best looking, the smartest, those with the best skills. Wouldn't it be great if we can sort of try to figure out genetically how to have what he called spiritually and physically perfect children? And that has some very troubling connotations to it and some very troubling mentality behind it. So there's an aspect of that that's also, I think, a little uncomfortable and that as it goes on, they're essentially experimenting with this idea of can we craft perfect children? And perfect people. Yeah, you go from birth control to eugenics in a real, in a short order, and it's a it's a thin line there. And 
the Oneida community is in no way the only people to make this leap. This is not unique to John Humphrey Noyes. But they also, control reproduction is really, the it dovetails really well with his idea of Christian perfectionism. So that's going to work really well into this idea that we can create perfect children. And it also is going to work really well with, he's playing favorites at this point. So he's clearly got people who he considers to be more open, more embracing, more uh, favor to him and his ideas, they're going to be encouraged to procreate. They're going to get their pick of partners, etc., because they have clearly embraced and are therefore more spiritually perfect and should have children. So you can see the real potential for abuse here. And children are also going to be removed from parental care so that children are weaned relatively quickly and sort of put in a, a children's wing. And so parents can visit, but the children's department like raises them. And if the larger community notices that a parent has too much attachment to their particular offspring, they're going to come up for mutual criticism and there will be a separation between they'll forbid the parents from or to allow them to visit their own offspring because they want to stop affection between parents and children. They want the children's department looks over all children. So there's a little bit of like a, that's a little utopian and, and, and very. Um, little culty. <laughs> little culty. We'll just yeah. say it, there right? Um, yep. And again, Let's some of this comes from ideas that are really interesting and progressive, which is just because you gave birth to a child doesn't mean you have to have the sole responsibility of raising and caring for them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The idea of it takes a village to raise a child, everybody can pitch in. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some really, really good ideas here in sharing the labor of child rearing. But then you start to get to a point of you're not supposed to have a connection to your parents or parental units. You're supposed to have a connection to the community, which is led by this one person, it starts to have that sort of feeling of classic cult activity of separate somebody from their established bond, which when you're a child, that is your mm -hmm. parent. And really, even if you've, if you've been weaned, it's the mother and uh, breed loyalty to a, a figure. Yes. So that there is an aspect of that, that again, starts out with an idea that I like, which is women should have support when it comes to child rearing and that raising children is, I think, the work of a community. And yet mm -hmm. it starts to move into something a little more troubling. And they also like the women's women are treated as largely equal, yeah. which is great and progressive and wonderful. There's a real radical reimagining of women's roles in the domestic sphere. The idea of birth control, of women having uh, the right to sexual pleasure. Women wear more functional clothing. They participate in all sorts of work. But but it goes a little, takes a step too far. For example, the sexual practices accept women, female sexuality, but a woman's right to refuse a sexual overture is limited depending on the status of the man making the advance. So what that's going to translate to in practice is the higher status the man, which is usually older, the less able functionally and uh, a woman is to refuse that advance. So again, what you're seeing is the older men are continuing to prey on younger women who have less ability to say no, if that's not what they want. So it takes good ideas and then just warps them. 
in a lot of really important and not great ways. Yeah, agree 100%. And there's aspects of when you look back and you see women were doing professional jobs, they were doing business work and sales, and they were artisans and craftsmen. Mm -hmm. It's all really exciting on paper. But then looking at some of the papers and documents, particularly women who were engaged in this through their young adulthood into a more mature mindset, you see how it becomes troubling and challenging for them to ever really have the same status when it comes to the free love aspect of this, because that right to refuse is not equal, whereas they can be equal in many other aspects. And ultimately, you know, all good things must end. This is, this is, you know, a lot of what we're talking about too is not how Oneida operated in the 1840s, 1850s. This is what was starting to emerge 1860s, 1870s. And John Humphrey Noyes really starts to push things, I think, too far, starts to really grow this you know, people who, like you said, have been with him, been loyal to him, seem to be as spiritually pure as him. Uh, up to the top, there starts to be some divides and divisions. And in 1879, he is charged with statutory rape, which is, I think, an inevitable consequence of this. Sure. Yeah. The state of New York has laws. State of New York has laws. Yes. I feel like John Henry Noyes has some weird ideas. And this is such a great example of like power corrupting. You know, like he has these great ideas and initially like this is a good, the thought process here is in some ways pretty laudable, right? And then he just, he gets a taste of power and it just sort of runs amok a little bit. At any rate, he's going to flee to Canada because New York has laws. He writes the community and warns them that maybe this complex marriage idea is perhaps not the best idea because it's getting legally challenged all over the place. And uh, yeah, it's not, it's the, the community starts to decline and it declines a lot without him. Passes the leadership onto one of his sons, but Theodore, his son just does not have whatever his father has, the charisma, the talent for leadership, the spiritual ability. He just doesn't have whatever it is. Uh, and things continue to decline. John Henry Noyes never comes back to the United States. He dies in Niagara Falls, Canada in 1886, but his body is eventually brought back to Oneida and buried in Oneida with many of his followers. Which um, I do give him a little, I guess, a tiny bit of credit for also just writing everybody and being like, we probably should break this up. I've been charged, but I don't want to see everyone else end up in long legal battles or jail. Mm -hmm. And so something to be said for uh, if you look at comparable esque groups and situations, most leaders don't do that. And so a little <laughs> bit of credit to the guy to be like, yeah, maybe um, maybe we've run as long as we can. But what the community does is very, very savvy. They disband as the community, but they convert all their industries into a joint stock company. Because by 1881, they had been working for almost 40 years and have built significant inroads in several industries. One of the other, um, John Humphrey Noy's sons, Pierpont, which I just love that name, basically consolidates them all in the early 20th century. He says, look, we're this joint stock company, but we're trying to do too many things. Let's focus on the thing we do best, which is silverware. And that becomes their big, huge legacy in many ways. They were the largest producer of flatware in the 20th century. And truly, like for fun, check your drawers, check your, especially check your parents and grandparents 
drawers like you will find Oneida flatware anywhere. Go to any mm -hmm. antique shop or estate sale. It is massive. And so he was the Pierpont was the guy that was like, let's not worry about all these other little things. Let's just focus on silverware. And it becomes like a billion dollar company. It's really interesting. There are other businesses. They have an animal trap business and a silk business and they they can for a while, but they reorganize as a joint stock company. Most of the marital partners basically reorganize and engage in traditional marriages at this point. And they make a lot of money making silverware, which is just such a weird transition. Free love to silverware. Just, it's so great. And they they were the largest producer of flatware in the 20th century. Like just an enormous amount of flatware out there in the world. Oneida Limited stops U.S. manufacturing in 2005. So this was with us up until quite recently, uh, but still designs and markets products that are made overseas and brought back over. So you can definitely, you will still find Oneida in the stores. You yep. can still buy it online. It exists. They just, um, like I guess many American companies, sadly, no longer manufacture and produce here. But again, like I said, you could definitely go to a store and find Oneida stuff. It'd be made abroad. But if you go to an antique shop, if you go to an estate sale, you can get the stuff that was made in upstate New York. It is not that hard to get your hands on. And the mansion house, which really was the primary communal dwelling, um, the one that stands today is a renovated version of the initial one, but it's a museum on there. They have a museum there. Mm -hmm. They have an event space. Yeah. They have dormitories. It's huge. It's um, you can event. go visit. Yeah. Um, they still have pieces of, the, they obviously don't manufacture anymore um, in the U.S., but they still have factories that you can tour and check out. So you can go to Oneida. It's also really great. They've got a lot of surviving material culture. So you get a lot of like how life was and how you made soap and how you like engaged in community aspects and wash clothes and things like that at a community level at this time period. So it's a really great material culture museum. It also like they collect all kinds of things related to the United community. They even have residential apartments and guest rooms. You could stay there. You could live there if you wanted to. It's really great. It's been continuously occupied since the 1840s, the Mansion House site, which is insane and unique and kind of cool. Um, but uh, yeah, Oneida is um, just so fascinating. John Humphrey Noyes is really interesting. And as like I mentioned earlier, I would like to circle back to Charles Gateau. Charles Gateau's father was a member of the community in a, a fairly good standing, but Charles Gateau kind of wanders around. He becomes, for about five years, he's in Oneida, and he does not seem to be well-liked. And as we pointed out in our episode about him, he's basically kicked out. Like, they ask him to leave, and then when he doesn't, like, they basically tell him to leave. And you've got to be really a weird character to not have anybody want to sleep with you in a utopian sex cult. So it kind of underscores how, like, really unlikable Charles Gateau was. But he's going to eventually leave leave and go assassinate President Garfield, which is a bummer for everyone concerned. We talked about the mutual criticism. Apparently, one of his first mutual criticism situations where he was like, had to take that went for several hours and he ultimately ended up fainting <laughs> after hearing this tirade of all the ways in which he could be improved. And uh, he just really, it did not, it was not a good fit for him. I always kind of just say kicked out for being too creepy, but it's more than that. He's not interested in contributing. Mm -hmm. He's not interested 
in being part of a community. Um, and he's not interested in growing or changing in any way, which is part of this. <laughs> but it's like, I, I, mm -hmm. I can't imagine that mutual criticism, someone being less likely to benefit from that than, than Gato, who you couldn't tell him anything, right? No. Like, oh, I failed at this. I'll just do the next thing. Right. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look inward. Right. It couldn't possibly be my fault. All it's these people not are wrong. me that I, you know, was, I have failed at every job I've ever had. Right. Charles Gato's <laughs> the physical embodiment of that meme. That's like, is it everyone that's wrong or is it me? Oh no, it must be everyone else. Like that's <laughs> Charles Gato. Like you get the literally people criticizing you for the same thing. Oh, obviously they're wrong. So it's, it's such an interesting, the Oneida community is interesting where it all goes wrong. is interesting too. It's a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, we don't often look at the United States as a country where we can point to what was essentially a successful socialist mm -hmm. experiment that lasted mm -hmm. decades. We're not just talking about a few years. And yet it did. And it happened in the 19th century. So there's definitely, I think, worth exploring, worth thinking about. There's a lot of great stuff we'll put in the show notes that'll link you to some of these letters and, and memoirs and stuff. And there's a couple of great books that have been written in the last few years. So this is a fun topic, a little maybe weird for the holiday season, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, how can we not do a little free love every now and then? I know, right? Good times. <laughs> love it. Oh, thank you always, uh, Podcast Land, for coming along with us. We appreciate you guys so much. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're definitely already gearing up for 2024. If you have ideas or questions or anything at all for upcoming episodes, reach out to us on the social medias. Email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yes. Thank you, everyone. And uh, see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.